0: Friday, and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Apollo 13 Minute, where each and every day, Monday through Friday, we go over one minute of the greatest space history movie ever made, the 1995 Ron Howard-directed feature Apollo 13. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com.
1: And I'm the other host. My name is Chris Henry. I'm with the EAA Aviation Museum in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. The favorite shows I have so far, are the ones where we have guests, and we're very honored and lucky to have a guest with us today. Uh, we have one of uh, uh the brave uh, souls of of Mission Control and NASA. We have Bill Reeves here with us uh, uh Bill, thank you again so much for coming on. We really appreciate it uh, no problem thank you
0: uh, we, uh, you you've played uh, many key roles working uh you working down on the on the front lines of uh of Mission Control. Um, and a, a particular note: uh, working on on Apollo thirteen, uh, from what I understand, especially on the electrical systems, on getting uh, getting power back from the limb to charge the uh, uh, the command module uh, was was one of the the key uh, struggles that you had to had to make uh, in getting Apollo thirteen home.
2: Yeah, I was uh, the the way the control center is set up. You got the main mission control room, and then surrounding the main mission control room. There are other support rooms that have uh, engineers and flight controllers that support the people out in the front room, And that's I was in one of those rooms. Uh, the lunar module only had two front room in the main room positions. There was a TELMU and a control. And the Telmu had all of the telecommunication systems, environmental control systems, and power systems, electrical power systems, and that's, and and then I was in the support room that I sat at the console that supported the electrical power system of the lunar module and was supporting that Telmu front room position. So it just gives you an idea of how it was set up.
1: Wow. wow. So, and how many people? Oh, I'm sorry. But how how many people generally were working in total between mission control front room and these uh, the other rooms as well? How many people do you think were up on a normal mission?
2: Oh gosh, I I, I would just the, we we ran three eight hour shifts around the clock, and you know each shift had a flight director in charge of the shift, and then you had you had console assignments for each shift. And the front room was on the order of 12 to 14 main positions. And uh, and then for each one of those positions, you had probably a half a dozen people in the support room supporting each one of them at least. So, you know, you were, you were talking about 100, 100 to 150 flight controllers per shift. But then, in addition to that, you had all kinds of other support people that were supporting, you know, off-site and at the vendors and the contractors that built the vehicles and all that kind of stuff. So we had access to all of those people as well. So it's a, it's a giant pyramid, and 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 it just it just gets spreads out all over the country and all over the world, for for that matter. So, so you had access to a lot of knowledge at the same time. But in terms of uh, my particular position, uh, there was only you know, me as the electrical power system on my shift supporting the, the front room console position. And then there, and, and the console I sat at was in charge of the electrical power system of the lunar module and the pyrotechnic system, which is all the pyros that fire in separate stages and all that kind of stuff. The other position that supported the front room was a, a communications instrumentation position. And so the two of us occupied a, a double console and supported the front room
0: when uh from what i from from what i understand when you were working on on the missions even you had an eight hour shift, but you pretty much didn't leave uh the campus when w- during a mission right you just kind of camped out in uh, the uh
2: oh none of us did yeah. <laughs> none of us did we uh uh as a matter of fact back in those days there was a, a dormitory uh, uh in uh, just off uh, off the control center. That uh, had a bunch of bunk beds and things like that, and if you know, if you wanted to go grab some, a little sleep or something like that, and you were off shift, you could go in there, and 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 that's what. I, and then there was a cafeteria right next door, and so hardly anybody, you know. Once we launched on the Apollo missions, hardly anybody left the, you know, left the building. We all, especially when you got down to the point of landing on the moon and and the time spent on the moon, I. I doubt hardly anybody ever left up there. Uh, even though you may not have been on shift, you you were still standing around watching and listening to what was happening.
1: And you worked that. Uh, I I know that you. I don't think you were on shift during the actual landing, but you were you were there. You know during the mission, obviously. And I I thought I read you came on shift after the landing. Is that right? Which flight are you talking about? Oh, I'm sorry, on Apollo Eleven.
2: Oh, an Apollo Eleven. Yes, I was. I was on uh, one of the shifts, but I wasn't on the landing shift. Um, another fellow was on the landing shift, but uh, but then you know we we took over after we landed and and supported the vehicle while it was on, sitting on the moon.
1: Wow, and that had to be pretty uh, that had to be pretty special. I mean, you had to go to work knowing that you were doing something uh, that was really a Piece of history for all time.
2: Well, yeah, that was that was um, <laughs> that was the thing that grabbed everybody, uh, and, and we were all very young in those days. Uh, you know, I I had I grew up in Arkansas and and went to college, got an electrical engineering degree, and I went to work for NASA in, in 1967, right out of college and and here i was 2 years later sitting on a console of mission control when we landed on the moon the first time in 1969 and, you know and i'm and i'm 25 years old and and the average age at, of the entire agency at that time at the apollo 11 landing was only 28 years old wow uh, you know so it was a bunch of you know, very young people uh the The senior people were the ones that came down from Langley in the early sixties from Langley, Virginia and set up the control you know the mission the uh, space center down here and and they were the older folks and they were just in their thirties so <laughs> wow, so it was a very young crowd.
0: Um, the the minute that we're in right now, we're talking about minute twenty five, which is um, it's where uh, it's the first time Jack Swigert uh, is with the crew and they're doing a mission simulation of a uh, of a reentry and they get the uh, the angle too shallow and uh, and they burn up. They really they concentrate a bit in the movie about simulation, but I think simulation played such an important role. In getting to the moon, how many times were you like the number of hours that you were in simulator time uh, with uh, with the crews over versus oh, the launch?
2: I, I I couldn't even begin to estimate the number of hours of simulation time we spent. Actually, the simulation people that that manned the simulators and and put the faults in for the flight controllers to respond and the crew to respond to in the simulators. We're, we're kind of the unsung heroes of the whole program, you know, the, the, those of us that sat out in the front room and, and, you know, on the consoles during the flights kind of got all of the publicity and the attention. But, but these people were behind the scenes people that, that, you know, uh, we could have never done what we did had those people not, not trained us to do what we did. And, uh, they, uh, they knew every bit as much about the systems as we did and, and they would, uh, spend every waiting hour trying to think up different failure modes to put in and, and make us respond to them. And, uh, i i couldn't tell you how many sims that we sat in but it was a bunch of them
0: well, and I, w- I would think that doing all those simulations helped you rewrite a lot of procedures and and things. Uh, you know, oh operations yeah, yeah that's that that's, really...
2: that's where the procedures and the contingency procedures came from uh, you know we would write them up and and then uh and then usually the simulation or training people would would get those procedures and they would find some mistake in them or some deal like that and that would wind up being on your next sim and and cause you to have to go back and rewrite the procedures or sometimes you never really knew what was going to happen because it was uh, you know a combination of failures sometimes that would get you that you you didn't you didn't plan on and, and it, you know, it was not only what the failure was, but it was when it happened and what was going on at that time and that that really made the difference. And so you can have the same failure, but just put it in at a different time and you would have a completely different result.
0: When you're working with different teams, like you had the Grumman team working on the LEM side and you had the North American folks on, on the command module, how well did each of these... Uh, these company folks know each other's systems i mean you, you were faced with with recharging the batteries between two two different company systems uh but were you all pretty much on a on the same team with that or
2: yeah but they they weren't so much real time as we were they were they were there uh had we had we did we need to to know something that we didn't know or or need to go get something tested or whatever like that if there was time to do it. But the uh the the contractors, uh Drummond and, and uh, Rockwell you know, they designed and built those vehicles and they tested them and 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 did all the, the years worth of work leading up to the flights. But by the time of the flights you you had you had the flight or operations people were the people operating the mission and and you knew you had those people to fall back on or to consult if you had a problem that was beyond your knowledge base but but uh, there's a there's an interesting uh, difference between operations people and engineering people and a lot of people don't understand that. And and uh, I have always been amazed at how the people who set this program up in the beginning always kept operations and engineering separate, and and it was absolutely the right thing to do. And I can't tell you the number of times in my career growing up in this system that that I would hear the engineering people say, oh, we don't need the operations people. You know, we we designed and built and tested this stuff, and we can operate it, and we, you know, all, all that kind of stuff, and so we don't need the operations people. And I can't tell you the number of times I heard the operations people say, we don't need the engineering people because we know as much as they do. And, and it was absolutely not true. Uh, people don't even understand in the operations world what kind of knowledge and what what the engineering people go through to to build these vehicles? And the engineering people have absolutely no idea how to fly these vehicles. They, they don't know what it takes to to fly them. And And uh, so it is it is two totally distinct uh, uh, Responsibilities there was a lot of uh, you know work going
0: on 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 si- simultaneously building uh, a lot of limbs up in Long Island. How much I, I've always wondered how much uh, the the learning that you've done you know the operational experience that you get from say Apollo nine and ten. Uh, did that go into the later missions, like the J missions? That you could, in- what kind of things could you incorporate from the lessons that you learned uh, from, like you know, Lem? Lem- well, there Man- were there
2: were a lot of things. Uh, the the vehicles, every vehicle was designed a little little different and would would capitalize on the knowledge and the experience from the the flight before you know the the first lunar module we ever flew was in earth orbit and it was unmanned and and we and we had a you know we would command sequences on board and have it do various things uh, to you know that the crew would have normally done but you didn't want to you didn't want to man the vehicle on the first flight because you didn't know how well it was going to do and and so you learn a lot from that testing and then as you as, as the program advanced, as a matter of fact, um, there's an interesting story about Apollo 10. Um, when the lunar module was built, we, we ran into a problem uh, leading up to Apollo 10 and 11 where we, where we found out the lunar module was overweight. It was too heavy to, to land on the moon and take back off and so the the program went through a giant weight reduction program grumman went through that vehicle and they took every ounce of metal out of that vehicle that they could take out everywhere they could take something off they took it off and and they finally got the vehicle down to a weight that it, it could land on the moon and take off the and and that Vehicle was the vehicle that landed on Apollo 11. Was the first lunar module that had gone through the weight reduction program. the The lunar module that was on Apollo 10 was one of the the earlier versions that was too heavy. and And I can't tell you the number of times I heard, you know, I've heard uh, the crew from from Apollo 10 say. Oh well, you know, we did a complete dress rehearsal of the landing, and we did everything except land. And, the, and that the the managers at NASA actually offloaded propellant to keep us from landing <laughs> in case we wanted to go ahead and land. And that's that, that's a funny story, but it's it's not true. The truth of the matter is that vehicle could not have landed. And uh, and we would have never have let that vehicle land, and and there was propellant offloaded, but it was because the vehicle was so heavy and stuff. So, uh, but it wasn't going to land anyway. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyways, so so that's an example of the question you ask about how you you're constantly learning every time you fly one of these things. Uh, and you know the the, the space shuttle flew 130 some odd missions and and I can tell you right up until the last mission every time we flew that vehicle we learned something new about it and and that's just the the nature of the beast
0: yeah it it's uh it's something how how much you get you gather from the real world from versus you know just just uh estimating stuff i did you get a lot of information for example on apollo 11 i know that uh just before they released uh, the ascent stage uh that uh buzz had turned off all the coolant uh, just to see how long a uh, a lem could run without coolant going through it um I think that you found out that it could run longer than was expected did did that affect
2: uh, i i'm I'm not following you I don't know what you're talking uh, about I don't remember what, any such a experiment from, so. from
0: what i what i what I heard was that uh the the lunar module descent stage uh just before they re, you know, after they they cleared out of it and, re, and released it before returning to uh, to earth uh every they basically turned on every every switch every light every you know let the computer run just to see how long uh the computer could function without um without coolant going through it you know uh let, well, let I, lim- d- I don't
2: i don 't remember any such thing I oh, okay. uh, tell you the truth um uh you know, the the when the crew lifted off of the moon and the and the vehicle separated, the descent stage stayed on the surface of the moon and the ascent stage flew flew the crew the two person crew back up to dock with the command module. And then once the crew transferred into the command module we we jettisoned the ascent stage of the lunar module with you know, empty with no crew in it, and we and we could command it from from Earth, and we com- we actually deorbited the the ascent stage and impacted it into the Moon. So uh, okay,
0: yeah, I, I just one of one of the things I had I had read was that that there was a there were some tests being done on the operational ones just to see how long like the the battery would last in the ascent stage after uh after being jettisoned just uh, just to test out the the system. But I guess uh, I guess not
2: no I, I i and it may be my memory I just don't remember any such i, I just don't remember that uh, i
0: i would i would think that even you know even the uh you know the emergency situation of Apollo thirteen you did glean some important data on how how rugged the lem was and what you could use it for in the future that you know the uh the uh the sturdiness the reliability of some of the systems uh, that may have, may have applied in, in later missions when, especially, I would think, you know, like on J missions and stuff where you were, you were spending a longer time on the moon, uh, knowing, knowing the limits of what, uh, what the equipment could do.
2: Yeah, we, uh, uh, you know, of course, Apollo 13, we were, <laughs> we were winging it from the get-go. We, uh, we, we had suddenly been thrust into a situation that nobody had ever really, you know, planned on. And, uh, I, I know. I, I was on the shift that was just coming on when when the accident happened on Apollo 13, and, and you know we were in transit to the moon. The way you you do the shift handovers, there's a one-hour shift handover where you have two teams there. The outgoing team is de, is debriefing and and the the oncoming shift so that. They know what has happened and and what to be ready for. And we were in the middle of that that debrief. Uh, during that transition of the handover between the two teams, I was coming on and another fellow was going off when the when the accident happened, which turned out to be very fortunate because we had two complete flight control teams in the building at that time. So we had a lot of resources immediately available to put on the problem. And and I remember that, the way I remember it was, you know, we had been through so many simulations, uh, simulating all of the failures and whatever, and the focus is always on do whatever you gotta do to complete the mission and to make it a successful mission and so your thinking is oriented in that direction to to try to do whatever you can do to pull off a successful mission given whatever problem you've got and and I know when we when we first had the problem that was the mentality in the room was oh how can we save this mission how, how? but it was amazing how fast we went from that kind of thinking to hey, this isn't about pulling off this mission. This, the mission is gone. This this is all about how to save this crew and get this crew back. And uh, and and it became obvious pretty quickly, like in a matter of minutes, that uh, that we were in a really bad situation. And and I remember when I was sitting at the console. And on my right is a strip chart recorder that separated me from the gentleman who was in charge of the power system of the command module. And 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 I remember that fellow, his name was Dick Brown, he was a North American Rockwell guy, and, and I remember him looking over at me and this other fellow that was going off shift, and he said, you guys better be figuring out how to power up the lunar module he said because we're going to be out of power here in about 20 to 30 minutes he said this vehicle is dying and uh, so we were we were busy trying to figure out how to power up the lunar module and and uh, see there was a, and i don't know how much time you got here but oh, cool, right you want to get the 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 way the the vehicle was designed on the way to the moon, when, when there wasn't anybody in the lunar module, everybody was in the command module, there were two umbilicals that went through the tunnel between the two vehicles. And, and some heater power was provided from the command module to the lunar module just to keep some equipment warm. And that was the only power that was on in the lunar module because you didn't want the batteries on because you didn't want to take any energy out of the batteries because you were going to need all of that for the, for the moon. And so you were running off a command module power. And then whenever the crew got ready to go into the lunar module and power it up, there was a switch in the command module called the CSM limb power switch. And, And they would throw that switch to the limb position, and it would automatically put the decent batteries, it would turn them on and put them on the, on the main power buses and power the vehicle up, just, just with that single switch action. Well, when the accident happened, the very first power bus that they lost in the command module due to the explosion killed all the power to that switch. Oh, wow. So there was no way to turn the lunar module batteries on and get them on the buses and bring the vehicle up. And then it, it gets more complicated because the way the vehicle was designed to to turn decent battery batteries on and off of the bus in the lunar module, you had to already have power on the bus because it, that's that was where the power came from to operate the relays that, that turned the batteries on. The ascent batteries, were were designed differently they that system was different and the switches to turn the ascent batteries on were hot wired and and powered straight from the batteries so you got power you already had power on the switches so you could bring an ascent battery online Mm -hmm. but there was another problem the other problem was that these batteries were silver zinc batteries with the potassium hydroxide electrolyte and and when they were fully charged they were hot they were like 38 volts or 39 volts which would over voltage if you put them on a bus and put them on the and turn equipment on it would over voltage the equipment so to get around that the decent batteries had uh, they, the batteries had 20 cells in them and, and to get around that there was a, a, a low voltage tap off of the 17th cells the first 17 cells to where you could run off of just 17 of the 20 cells until you got enough power out of the battery for the voltage to fall and stabilize at 28 volts where you wanted it. If you... When I go back to the story about turning the ascent battery zone right. with the hot switches, if you put them on the bus and then brought the equipment on, you would have overvolted the equipment. And and so we had to write a procedure real time to to name all, to go in and pull a whole bunch of circuit breakers and and get all of the equipment off of the bus before you powered it up with an ascent bat- a hot ascent battery. And then they pulled all those breakers, and then you'd turn an ascent battery on, put it on the bus, and now you had power on the bus to start bringing the descent batteries on, and you could bring them on on their low 17-cell tap, and, and then you could start bringing the equipment up and, and pushing breakers back in and all that kind of stuff after you turn that ascent battery off and so this was a real complicated procedure that we had to write real time because it didn't exist yeah and, and you you and weren't we going to have, it
0: up. you weren't going to have time to run we, that through a sim either
2: no no and and normally you would do that any any time you'd write some new procedure you'd always want to go train it in the simulators and all that kind of stuff and and debug it and make sure so so we just wrote this thing up real time and and i mean they it passed it right out to the front room and, and they read it right straight up to the crew and talked to the crew through it. And, and that's the way we powered the vehicle up. And, uh, but, but, uh, you had a lot of people looking over your shoulder to make sure you were doing everything right. And, uh, and, you know, the Grumman people were, were online and, and we were constantly checking with them to make sure we did everything right. And, and, uh, uh, but that's that's the way it happened.
0: Wow. Now, after uh after Apollo, Apollo 13, what changes to Apollo 14 were made from the lessons learned on 13? What did you, what, was there anything changed about the limb
2: on uh, on Apollo 14? Not not really. We the the limb behaved so beautifully that that uh, uh there really you couldn't have asked for a much better vehicle. Yeah. Uh, it, it far exceeded anything it was designed to do. You know, it was designed to support two people for a few days on the moon, and and it instead it wound up supporting three people for for several days, and and it uh, it it performed very very well, and um, so there really weren't a lot of changes to make. About the only big change that we made uh, to the lunar module that I can remember for the later limbs was. Uh, we extended the the decent engine bell. They added ten inches to the bottom of the bell to get to to increase the amount of hover time you could get on the moon, you know looking around for a good landing site with the amount of fuel that it would carry and And it increased the hover time and then the other change we made was starting with Apollo fifteen and to the to the sixteen and seventeen. We had added another decent battery to 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 increase the amount of time we could spend on the moon they uh, we actually put a, a fifth battery on hmm. But and those are about the only big changes that I can remember that we made to the vehicle I, I guess, little, I guess the, little knit things, but nothing nothing really big
0: um and with the uh with the service module checking the jacketing and make sure that the uh, electrical systems were okay, I guess would be the other. The other side, a lot more inspection. Well, yeah, there.
2: yeah. The command module, they they went through a, a complete, uh, you know, look over. Uh, they they did a, made a lot of changes to it uh, to to prevent what had happened. Of course, you know, in the investigation uh, as to as to what caused all this, it, 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 they traced it clear back to uh, you know when when the the tank the tanks that supported the fuel cells when they were being transported in a warehouse or something somewhere the a forklift actually dropped a, a tank set that tank set uh, a short distance and and they tested it to make sure that it didn't do anything to it and it passed all the tests but they eventually after in the in the post accident investigation they they assumed that that was probably what caused the, the short to happen in the, in the tank that caused the explosion. And now, it was traced clear back to that one incident.
0: Within, uh, within two years after this, there was going to be uh, the major split between uh, the Apollo applications, which would be Skylab, and then uh, the folks starting to work on, on Shuttle. Um, where, uh-huh. where were you? Uh, kind of riding the line with both of those? Did you work on Skylab as well as shuttle, or where, how did your career go? No,
2: like I, uh, I, I, I was a flight controller, like and so, like I said, in the support room for the power system for the entire Apollo program, all the way to the end. And and when we were in the last part of that program, in the early 70s 71 the program ended in 72 uh, we uh, we were already on design teams trying to dra- write requirements for this thing called a shuttle that they wanted to build and they were trying to you know we were we were starting to write requirements uh, so that people could design the vehicle and then uh, and then we were looking at about a old five-year gap between the end of Apollo and when they thought the first shuttle would fly. And uh, the the lunar module guys were were basically out of a job because the, they were going to use the command and service module for Apollo Soyuz and for Skylab. So all of the command service module people still had things to do. But the, there were no more lunar modules, so the the lunar guys were were having to switch jobs to go to something different. And and, uh, and Gene Kranz, who you've you've heard of, he he was head of flight ops at that time, and he was looking for uh, a project or program to to try to keep the, a lot of the limb guys together, so he didn't lose them, so he could bring them online for shuttle later on. And, and uh, they found this Earth Resources Aircraft Program over in the Science and Applications Directorate, and they brought it into Flight Ops, and they asked for volunteers, and I volunteered to, to be a mission manager on the high-altitude airplanes uh, for, the, for the Earth Resources Program. And so I got accepted and went through training and, and was a, a backseat Crew member and scientific equipment operator and mission manager on that flew on the high altitude airplanes and I did that uh, after Apollo ended. I went straight out there and did that for what what later turned out to be eight years uh, yeah. till shuttle came along. And then uh, as when it got close to time to fly shuttles, I came back from the aircraft program back into flight ops, and I was uh, I worked on the uh, helping to design the operations and support the operations for the robotic arm on the shuttle. And then uh, I did that, and then uh, later we combined the robotics arm support with uh, mechanical APU hydraulic systems the one console position. And by then, I was out in the front room. And then in 1983, I was selected as a flight director uh, for shuttle. And I did that for 15 years. Um, um, you know, was flight director for quite a few shuttle flights, about 24 shuttle flights. So that was my career th- there.
0: And you you were also you were also involved with uh, with shuttle Mir as well, right? I mean, toward toward the end of your career there.
2: Yeah, I uh, I was the first. Uh, American flight director. To, when when we were going to fly the shuttle to the Russian space station Mir, uh, I was in the flight director office, and and they assigned me to to be the first flight director to go over to Moscow and set up operations in their control center uh, to support flying the shuttle to the to the Mir. So I took the first team of flight controllers over to Moscow, and and we set up our operations over there in in their control center, and and worked out procedures with them, and and uh, and then w- and whenever we did fly the shuttle to the Mir, I was in Moscow in their control center supporting from over there. Went, and and as you know, we wound up having a a team of consultants from Russia were in our control center. And then we were the consultants in their control center. So you had, you know, you had people could sit down over a table and eyeball to eyeball and and talk problems, and and that worked out extremely well. That was absolutely the right thing to do.
1: Well, and I guess I had to ask. Uh... We ought to ask a question about the movie, I guess, <laughs> since we're talking oh, about okay. the movie yeah. as well. This is amazing, though. We we and we can't thank you enough know, for this detail, because you can't get it anywhere else. I mean, this is great firsthand information about this. Um, the you know, what did you think? Hey, what did you think of the movie? And uh, you know, did uh, did they come and talk to you guys about it at all when they went to make it?
2: Oh yeah, yeah. Like I like I said earlier, they the the a lot of their their people came here and and, uh, interviewed a lot of us that were there, uh, when they were writing the script for the movie. And, uh, and so they talked to a whole bunch of us, uh, uh, you know, trying to you know, get an idea of what went on. And then, and then when I saw the movie, um, I was blown away by how accurate the movie was, you know how how that group of people managed to capture everything you know pretty well. Uh, there, there was a little you know, just a, a tiny bit of Hollywood license uh, taken in the movie on a couple of things, but they were just you know really kind of insignificant stuff that that nobody would catch except somebody like us that. You know that that knew what really happened, and uh, but it was it was pretty accurate, and uh, um, uh, like I say, I I can't I can't really say anything about it that that wasn't all that accurate. When, when, uh, I, when... I do remember one, I do remember one thing uh, on on the way back from the moon uh I remember in the movie the the ground called the vehicle and told the crew that they had determined that it wasn't going to hit the corridor accurately to, for reentry, and so they were going to have to do a mid-course correction and and uh, the crew said in the movie well how are you going to do that and the and the ground said well we don't know yet but we're working on it and then you know, whoever played Lovell in the movie said, well, I'll show you how you're going to do it, you're going to do this, That's the this, this. Well, n- number one, the ground would never call the crew and say, we're, we're going to do something, but we don't know how to do it yet, and we're <laughs> working on it. You, you would never do that. And number two, the crew had absolutely no way of knowing how, you know, how to, uh, how to do that burn, to to do that mid-course correction, they they didn't even know where they were. You know, they they could look out the window and see the Earth and the Moon, and they knew about where they were. But but they didn't they didn't you know the vehicle was powered completely down. When we were after the accident and once everything stabilized, we had that vehicle powered down to three hundred watts. That was the oh. total power draw oh. on that vehicle. That's three one hundred watt light bulbs and and that that was it i mean we, we kept a radio on where the ground could talk to the crew and we had a you know we had some of the environmental control system stuff up that would keep the crew alive but that was it and all the guidance equipment everything else was turned off and and so they had no idea where they were we were tracking the vehicle from the ground and and with these massive computers and everything we had here and and so the the flight dynamics guys were the guys that could figure out how to do the burn and which way you pointed, and and as a matter of fact, when they did it, uh, they got the procedure together, they read it up to the crew, and they told the crew, you know, power up these systems, bring the guidance, bring the control system up to manual control. And they did that, and then they said now. Pitch the vehicle over until you can see the moon out the overhead docking window, and they did that. And then they said, now yaw the vehicle until you can see the earth out the commander's window at a certain point on the the gradical that was on the window. And they said, okay, I got that. And they said, now roll the vehicle until you can see something else, some star out the other window. And it was a triangulation. The flight dynamics guys had, had figured out how to do this visually because the guidance system wasn't, the platform wasn't aligned. It wasn't powered up. And so they got this visual triangulation on these three objects. And they said, now, do you have that picture? And the crew said, yes. And they said, now, fire the engine, the decent engine, for 10 seconds. And they and they, they they did. They just hit the button and they counted to ten and they turned it off. And they said, "Now turn everything else, turn everything back off, and and you're done." And that was it. Yeah. And that's the way they did it real time.
0: Wow, oh,
1: that's yeah, incredible. I
0: mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's been 45 years and it's still just you know he had sweaty hands thinking about that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's it's amazing. Well, Bill. Oh thank, yeah. Yeah, uh, I. This is going to be real. I have, I have a very, very in the weeds technical question that isn't about uh, Apollo thirteen, but back with uh, with shuttle Mir when they were doing the uh, uh, the docking with the Specter module, um, the the way I understood shuttle operations for rendezvous with like, like satellite captures and stuff, they did it on the on the velocity vector, the v bar. Um, was it difficult doing an r bar approach with uh, with shuttle to Mir?
2: No, no, it really wasn't. In fact, it it's a better way to do it. Um, b- because the, you're coming into the target vehicle from underneath and and uh, you know it's it's in an orbit and you're in an orbit, but you're you stop the vehicle, the shuttle when it's approaching the mirror. You stop it. On the radius vector from the center of the Earth to the to the vehicle on orbit, the target vehicle, yeah. and 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 then in order to to close the distance so that you can dock with it, you're firing jets to to send the vehicle outbound from on the radius vector from the center of the Earth. Yeah. You're 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 moving. You're having to force the vehicle up to go toward the target vehicle. And and if anything happened, like a thruster didn't work or whatever, or you got in some kind of a problem, all you had to do was nothing, do nothing, because orbital mechanics, as you went around the earth, would cause you to separate from the target vehicle and go back down toward the earth. And so it was a much safer way to do it. Yeah, you had a lot more control. You were you were actually having to close the gap, you know, on intentionally, purpose yeah. but if you yeah. but if you couldn't the orbital mechanics would separate you. Yeah.
0: Uh it must have been it must have been nervous times though, I would imagine that first that first time connecting with, with Mira and un I mean no, nothing had ever used that particular uh connector on the module. I mean they they had built it for Buran but never never had gotten around to testing it so that was a, yeah. an
2: amazing well first. but it was the same uh, it it was the same uh, they called it a adrogynous docking mechanism it was the same mechanism that that the Russians had used between modules before so so they had experience with it and they, and they and they knew they knew what it was and and we did lots of testing on it before it ever flew so uh and, and they had to make some minor uh, modifications to it to accommodate the, you know, the mass of the shuttle versus, you know, what, what they had designed it originally for. And, uh, but it, it, it it's always worked extremely well. It, it was a fantastic design and it's, it's always worked. I always marveled at the, at the Russian designs. It's, it's a, it's a little different approach, uh, to things than we do. Um, uh, Russian design always seemed to be brute force you know they they did things just whatever they had to do and and we you know we always in in fact you know if you look at some of the designs of some of their vehicles they put a lot of their technology into performance and and so their theory is you know you can make a house fly if you put enough power behind it. Yeah. And and so they 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 build these big engines with a lot of performance and then they don't and then they don't have to worry that much about weight and and they design everything beefy and heavy. We on the other hand will design every we design everything as light as we can design it, you know, and 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 you're you don't have a lot of structural margin on a lot of the stuff that we do because we get the weight down to where we can do what we got to do, and uh, it, it's just a different approach to things.
0: Uh, I have a I have a friend who's uh, an astronaut, w- uh, Wendy Lawrence, who was up on uh, on Mir, uh, or she visited. She couldn't stay there because she was too small to fit in the Orland uh, spacesuits. But she said that one of the remarkable things is how much wood the uh, the russians use in their construction cab. they'll have wooden <laughs> knobs she says it feels very homey when you're on when you're on board
2: oh yeah yeah as a matter of fact yeah one of the astronauts chris hadfield who who was a good friend of mine uh, he flew he flew up there and went to the mirror and and he told me when he came back he he said uh he, he it was kind of funny he said you, you went into the to the mirror and there's this there's this big styrofoam block taped to the ceiling with a bunch of old screwdrivers and stuff stuck in it. You know, old screwdrivers with wooden handles with tape on them and everything just like you'd have in your garage. <laughs> you <know? laughs> and that was their toolbox. <laughs> and uh, so it it, uh, it was kind of funny. They got them to orbit. You so know, we, yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it works. I mean, yeah. it, it works. Wow. Wow. So.
0: Well, well, Bill, thank, thanks so much for being on our show. I hope we can have you back on a future episode. Um, I've, got, I've got a lot more questions, but we, we, we've only got about an hour show. So. It's
2: okay, um, well, but but yeah, it, it's, you, you get us old people talking about all this stuff, and and we'll talk forever. So, oh, it's well, uh, uh, it, be my, my awesome. pleasure. It's well, it's
0: much appreciated. Wow, well, uh, for uh, for folks listening in who want to hear more episodes of this, uh, you can always check us out online. We're available at uh, Apollo Thirteen minutecom You can find us on uh, on Twitter at Apollo Thirteen Minute and on Facebook at the Apollo Thirteen Minute Mission Control. Uh, Check us out on iTunes or Google Play. You can uh, download our podcast uh, Hot and Fresh every day, Monday through Friday. We'll be back with um, more adventures next week. Uh, So join us back here on the Apollo 13.